I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. Evidence-Based Hair was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The third Monday of each month is dedicated to scarring alopecia, and this is where we'll be turning today. We'll review eight studies from the past month or two in the area of scarring alopecia. We'll look at a fascinating study addressing the genes and proteins that are differentially expressed in FFA compared to alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, and psoriasis. We'll look at an interesting study of 188 patients with FFA and some very important epidemiologic principles in these patients. Then we'll turn to a study of 17 patients with FFA, here a study of male frontal fibrosing alopecia. Then we'll turn our attention to lichen plano pilaris and the use of mycophenolate mofetil in the treatment of LPP. Then we'll look at baricitinib in the treatment of LPP as well. From there, we'll turn to the use of adalimumab, a TNF inhibitor in treating folliculitis decalvans. Folliculitis decalvans is often treated first line with various antibiotics, but what are the options when the antibiotics don't work? Finally, we'll conclude with two interesting studies in CCCA, or central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, looking at the risk of diabetes in patients with CCCA. The data in the past has been all over the place, some studies suggesting an increased risk, some studies suggesting no risk at all. And then we'll look at the risk of vitamin D deficiency in women with CCCA. And a very, very important principle, the vitamin D paradox. If you don't know about the vitamin D paradox, be sure to stay tuned. A really important subject about vitamin D levels and how best to measure vitamin D levels in black women. So let's begin with studies of frontal fibrosing alopecia. Frontal fibrosing alopecia is increasing worldwide in both men and women. It's an autoimmune condition that affects the frontal scalp, but also the area behind the ears, the back of the scalp, eyebrows, eyelashes, body hair is affected. The reasons for FFA are not entirely clear. A very, very important study was published in the March issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology by Dubin and colleagues, and the references for all the studies that I'll mention today are in the show notes that accompany this episode. And so the authors from New York set out to determine how FFA differs from alopecia areata, as well as psoriasis, as well as atopic dermatitis. And so the authors assessed 33,118 genes in the scalp using RNA sequencing, as well as 350 proteins in the serum using high-throughput proteomics technology. So the authors included 38 patients in their study. 12 had FFA, 18 had alopecia areata, and there were eight controls. These patients had biopsies, these patients had blood draws, and the biopsies were submitted for RNA sequencing analysis, and the blood was submitted for the various proteomic analysis to determine how proteins differ. So the authors found 1,218 genes that were differentially expressed in the scalp of patients with FFA compared to alopecia areata. The most significantly altered genes were related to inflammation and fibrosis, especially those related to Th1 signaling, T-cell activation, T-regulatory pathways, fibrosis, as well as the JAK-STAT pathway or the Janus kinase pathway. And what was interesting is that the activation of the JAK-STAT pathway seemed to correlate pretty well with fibrosis. In other words, the greater the expression of genes related to JAK-STAT signaling, the greater the expression of fibrosis-related genes as well. So a very important link between JAK pathway activation and fibrosis or scarring, which may of course have a lot of relevance in this scarring alopecia. And in general, there was much more robust inflammation in the scalp of those with FFA compared to alopecia areata. When serum was analyzed, some very important findings, surprises, were discovered. 
There is only one significantly upregulated protein in the serum of FFA compared to control patients, and that was the apoptosis-related gene ADM. When the authors compared protein expression in FFA compared to alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, and psoriasis, there were some remarkable differences. In alopecia areata, there were 73 proteins that were differentially expressed compared to just one in FFA. There were 45 proteins in, a in atopic dermatitis and 47 proteins in psoriasis. So there was a lack of immune activation in the serum of FFA, and there was a lack of atherosclerosis-type signaling as well. And these authors have spent quite a bit of time in the past looking at atherosclerosis-type signaling for these various cardiovascular markers and immune signaling biomarkers. These were all present in alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, but they weren't present in FFA. In FFA, there was much more scalp inflammation than serum inflammation. In alopecia areata, there was much more serum inflammation than scalp inflammation compared to FFA. So these are both inflammatory conditions, but they're very different in how inflammation is regulated. And so in conclusion, the authors propose that FFA is a condition in which robust inflammation seems to be limited to the scalp. And FFA may be a very different condition compared to these other inflammatory conditions like psoriasis, like atopic dermatitis, and like alopecia areata. And overall, the authors propose that fibrosis is very much a part of the pathogenesis of FFA, and it's very closely related to the JAK-STAT pathway. This is, of course, very relevant because we have drugs that target the JAK-STAT pathway. They're called JAK inhibitors. And we'll take a look at this in a subsequent study we'll discuss today. But this is really relevant, that there's clearly a link between JAK activation and fibrosis in patients with FFA. And so this is a really, really important study. Like all good studies, there are really a very, very large number of questions that arise in this particular study. All really good studies raise a number of questions. And so let's take a look at some of the questions that arise from this study. Again, proposing that FFA is a very unique inflammatory condition where there's almost scalp-only type inflammation, very little systemic inflammation, very little atherosclerosis-type biomarkers as well. So what are the unknowns that we need to address? Well, there's several. The authors propose that none of these atherosclerosis or cardiovascular biomarkers were present in the serum of FFA, like they found in psoriasis, like they found in alopecia areata. And so are patients with FFA truly at increased risk for heart disease? Well... If we truly believe that FFA and LPP, or lichen planopilaris, are closely related, we got to keep in mind that patients with LPP, at least based on current evidence, seem to be at increased risk for heart disease. Compared to controls, patients with LPP seem to have a 1.7-fold increased risk of coronary artery disease, a 1.5-fold increased risk of heart attacks, and a 1.6-fold increased risk of strokes. So, is... FFA, a heart disease-free version of LPP? Well, we just don't know, and, and more studies are certainly needed, but we, we need to keep that in mind. Do we really accept that FFA is a scalp-only type disease? In terms of inflammation, it seems to be a very scalp-predominant disease based on this study. But re remember that FFA is not limited to the scalp. Eyebrows, eyelashes, body hair, pubic hair, axillary hair is involved the authors didn't address fibrosis-related genes in other body parts and signaling in other body parts. And so, is eyebrow hair loss regulated the same way as scalp hair loss? Is the relationship between jack inhibition and fibrosis genes the same in eyebrows? Arm hair, leg hair, underarm hair? We just don't know. And we feel that there are many systemic associations that are really closely tied into FFA. And if we view... FFA as this unique scalp-only inflammatory condition where there's inflammation in the scalp, scalp, scalp. What do we make of all this information that tells us there's a risk of early menopause, lichen sclerosis, low androgen levels, vitiligo, rosacea, Sjogren's syndrome? Is this just a coincidence? Is this just past studies that have found some p-values that are significant, or are these really part of the disease? More studies are clearly needed, but we have to keep that in mind. There seem to be some really important associations. 
How do we tie in the increased risk of rosacea in FFA patients? There's been several studies that suggest what a twofold increased risk of rosacea in patients with FFA. Is FFA just a scalp disease or is this rosacea issue really relevant? Seems relevant. What do we make of this? It seems that women with more advanced FFA are at increased risk of rosacea. More studies are clearly needed so we can better understand what all this means. And if FFA is not really a systemic disease traveling all through the body with either hormonal or inflammatory or gene-related mechanisms, then why do systemic medications that we take into the body induce FFA? We know that tamoxifen, the anti-estrogen tamoxifen, which is used for breast cancer, has about a 15-fold increased risk of inducing FFA. What do we make of that? A 2019 study showed that the IL-12, IL-23 inhibitor ustekinumab also can induce FFA in some patients. What do we make of this information? And do patients with FFA truly have an increased risk of menopause? Well, Dr. Sergio Van Ogelvan, my colleague in Spain, really did some very important studies in, in 2014 with one of the largest studies at that time of FFA, and his data suggested that 14% of women have early menopause compared to 1% of the general population. And other studies have suggested this as well. So what do we make of this? Is FFA truly a scalp, scalp, scalp disease, or is it some unusual systemic condition? And why do patients with FFA seem to be at increased risk for so many autoimmune diseases? Is this just coincidence? Autoimmune diseases are not uncommon in the population. And so when they turn up in studies... Is it just coincidence or is it relevant? Thyroid disease seemed to be increased in patients with FFA. Oral lichen planus, nail lichen planus, lichen sclerosis, discoid lupus, Sjogren's syndrome, psoriasis. These may in fact be increased in patients with FFA. What do we make of this information? So all in all, this study by Dubit and colleagues in the JAD in March 2022 is a very, very important study one of the top studies so far in, in 2022, and I'd encourage you all to review it. It's a wonderful study, and it really highlights some very important information for us to think about, and I'd encourage you all to review it further if you'd like. So we'll continue in the area of FFA, looking at a study in January 2022 from the International Dermoscopy Society. The International Dermoscopy Society invited members to send in cases of FFA, and there were 188 cases of FFA that were sent in, and they evaluated features of these 188 patients. 98.4% were women, 88% were postmenopausal, the youngest patient was 15 years of age. The mean age of menopause was 44 years, which is significantly younger than the average age of menopause in the general population. And it took about 4.4 years from the time hair loss occurred in order for patients to get a formal diagnosis of FFA. And the reason I highlight this study is it just has some very important pearls and practice points for us to be thinking about. 10% of patients had a family history. I think that's interesting. I see FFA a lot. And probably not a day goes by that I don't see a patient with FFA. And I'm not sure in my practice that one in 10 patients has a family history, but I think this is really important because maybe we're not picking up subtle cases of FFA. This study suggested 10%. Other studies have suggested lower numbers and other studies have suggested differently, but I think it's really important. Up to one in 10 patients with FFA have a family history. This particular study suggested that the mean age of onset was similar in patients that had a family history compared to patients that didn't have a family history. So that is certainly relevant. Not surprising, patients with FFA had hair loss at other sites. 85% had eyebrow loss. 27% had eyelash loss. 47% had body hair loss. 42% had armpit hair loss or axillary hair loss. And 36% had pubic hair loss. So we need to ask about all these sites as well. And do keep in mind, as you're thinking about FFA, that very often it starts just in the eyebrows. And so a patient over the age of 45 who comes in and says, I'm losing a lot of eyebrows. you got to think about FFA. There may be no scalp hair loss. You have to be thinking about FFA. Other conditions include alopecia areata, trichotillomania, overplucking. And there's a whole bunch of infectious diseases as well. But you need to have FFA at the top of the list. Same with arm hair. A patient who suddenly loses dramatic amounts of arm hair or leg hair, you have to be thinking about FFA. 
38% of patients in this study also had androgenetic hair loss, and 18.6% had lichen planal pilaris. I think that's really important. When you see patients with FFA, don't stop at the frontal hairline. You have to check the middle of the scalp for lichen planal pilaris. Is there redness? Is there scale? Is there itching? Is there burning? Is there tenderness? Are they shedding? You have to look at the eyebrows, the eyelash, the body hair. You have to look at the nails. You have to look in the mouth. You have to ask about all of these associations, psoriasis, lichen sclerosis, uh, Sjogren's syndrome, dry mouth, dry eyes. You have to ask about all these autoimmune conditions, psoriasis, vitiligo, discoid lupus. So we have to be thinking really systemically when we think about FFA until we know more. The other thing I liked about this study from the International Dermoscopy Society is they put forward the notion that I'm a strong believer in, and that is that the majority of cases of FFA can be diagnosed without a biopsy. Yes, we sometimes need a biopsy, but the majority of cases can be diagnosed with trichoscopy. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there used to be a paradigm in scarring alopecia, and that is if you see a patient with scarring alopecia, you do a biopsy. You walk in, you see a patient with scarring alopecia, you do a biopsy. Patient in room 4 has a scarring alopecia, we think. Let's do a biopsy. Patient in room 12 has a scarring alopecia, we think, based on the referral. Oh, let's do a biopsy. That's no longer the case. If you are confident in the diagnosis via trichoscopy, and your skills in trichoscopy are pretty proficient, you may not need a biopsy in all cases. And so this is becoming more and more of the norm. So in conclusion, a really nice study. FFA can occur in very young patients, as young as 15. The age of menopause seems to be younger in women with FFA compared to the general population. And this study also highlighted a delay of 4.4 years from the onset of hair loss to diagnosis. So clearly we need to do better in educating the public, educating practitioners of various backgrounds about FFA so that women don't have to wait 4.4 years on average to get a diagnosis. Significant hair loss occurs during that time, and much of the hair loss in FFA is irreversible. Not all, but some. And finally, we turn to a study in FFA published in the British Journal of Dermatology addressing male frontal fibrosing alopecia. FFA is certainly more common in women. 95 to 99% of cases of FFA occur in women, and a small proportion occur in men. But I'm absolutely confident that cases of male FFA are increasing worldwide. Male FFA has a lot of similar characteristics to female FFA. You need to be aware of four areas, and that is eyebrow loss, frontal hair loss, especially the temples, beard hair loss, and sideburn hair loss. These have to be on your radar, and you're thinking about FFA, you want to take your dermatoscope or your trichoscope, zoom in on the eyebrows, zoom in on the beards, zoom in on the sideburns, zoom in on the temples, and of course, take really good histories of hair loss in these areas, in addition to looking at hair loss at other sites, in addition to looking at for facial papules, in addition to looking for depression of the forehead veins, which can occur in FFA as well. So this study in the BJD by Rahinda and colleagues addressed 17 patients with FFA that were male. The median age was 44 years which interestingly was significantly younger than these authors' female patients with FFA. In their female database from the UK, the average age was 66. Here the average age median was 44. So FFA may occur at younger ages in men than in women. In addition to scalp hair loss, other sites involved were the eyebrows in 65%, eyelashes in 12%, limb hair loss in 59%, facial hair loss in 65%, and facial papules in 47%. There were a number of systemic associations in these male patients with FFA. Again, we're not sure what to make of these systemic associations as well. They seem to be true associations based on all the studies to date, but what do we make of them? Oral lichen planus was found in 6% of patients. Vitiligo was found in 6%. Lichen sclerosis in 6%. Certainly vitiligo and oral lichen planus are not that uncommon in the population. These numbers may be higher than the average general population statistic, which suggests that maybe these are increased in patients with FFA. But lichen sclerosis is not 6% in the general population. 
and it's 6% here in this small study. There seems to be some increased risk of lichen sclerosis, which is a scarring inflammatory condition of both women and men in the genital area. So maybe there's some link between FFA and lichen sclerosis. Nail ridging was found in 6% in this study, Androgenetic hair loss or male balding was found in only one out of every five patients, 18%. Not a very high percentage in this particular study, and a lot of studies in the past have suggested much higher numbers. But nevertheless, a very helpful study that ties in with this accumulating literature about male FFA. Male FFA appears to occur at younger ages than female FFA, Eyebrows are involved, temples are involved, beard hair loss, sideburn hair loss is very important for us to think about. And there's all these other systemic autoimmune associations that we need to think about and ask about and examine when we're thinking about FFA. More studies are clearly needed. From FFA, we turn to LPP or lichen planopilaris. LPP is a common scarring alopecia in the scarring alopecia world. It's not a very common hair loss condition in general. Probably 1 in 2,000 people, 1 in 3,000 people in the world have lichen planopilaris, but it's one of the more common scarring hair loss conditions of all the scarring hair loss conditions. LPP affects the central scalp, but it can affect the scalp all over. Patients present with itching and redness and scale around the hairs and hair loss. A study by Musa and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology looked at the treatment of LPP with the JAK inhibitor baricitinib. JAK inhibitors have been studied in the past. A study by Yang and colleagues in 2018 and a study by Plante and colleagues in 2020 looked at the use of tofacitinib, either orally or topically, in the treatment of LPP. And those two studies suggest that, yeah, it might help a bit. Here we have a study looking at another JAK inhibitor, baricitinib, in the treatment of LPP. And so the author set out to retrospectively review the records of all patients with LPP and FFA that were treated with baricitinib for at least three months. There were seven patients treated with baricitinib for classic LPP and five patients treated with baricitinib for FFA. The median age at diagnosis was 43 years. The median baseline LPPAI, or the LPP activity index, was 5.8. And the LPPAI is a is a way of trying to score how active LPP is. It looks at how much itching, burning, and pain a patient has, how much scaling and redness they have when you examine the scalp, how positive the pull test is, and whether or not the hair loss is spreading. And when you calculate all this, you get the LPP activity index. Kind of a crude measure about how active this is. It's a scale of 1 to 10. And so the median baseline LPP activity index was 5.8. And so baricitinib was started at 3.4 milligrams and the dose was increased according to how patients responded. There were seven patients with LPP that were treated with baricitinib at six months. Four patients were non-responders, two were partial responders, and just one was a good responder. So just 14% of patients were good responders to baricitinib for LPP. There were two patients with LPP that had been treated with tofacitinib in the past, the JAK inhibitor tofacitinib, and the authors wanted to determine if baricitinib, this other JAK inhibitor, would have any role. Well, one patient failed. They didn't get a good response at six months. But one patient had a partial response to baricitinib, even though they failed tofacitinib. For patients with FFA, there were five patients. And when you look at the data at six months, three were non-responders and two were good responders. So 40% were good responders. There were two patients that had been treated with tofacitinib in the past. They didn't improve with tofacitinib. And so when the authors studied the use of baricitinib, both of these patients failed at six months. And so a small study, so conclusions are somewhat limited, but 40% of patients with refractory FFA seem to improve significantly with baricitinib, and only 14% of patients with refractory LPP seem to get a nice response with baricitinib. So baricitinib may help some patients with LPP, but only partially and a fairly low proportion. 
baricitinib may help FFA more. But if a patient fails tofacitinib, probably not worthwhile to put them on baricitinib, at least as we understand it now. If you fail tofacitinib, you're probably going to fail baricitinib at least in this small study. But a helpful study, the first looking at baricitinib, the JAK inhibitor, baricitinib, in the treatment of LPP. From there, we look at a study addressing the use of mycophenolate mofetil in LPP. Mycophenolate mofetil is another immunosuppressant. It's used for a variety of autoimmune-type conditions. It goes by the name Celsept myfortic. Mycophenolate mofetil was first approved in the U.S. in 1995 to address graft rejection in patients that are having kidney transplants, liver transplants, heart transplants. It's been used off-label for treating LPP for at least 15 years, and it's in fact it's used for a variety of autoimmune conditions, both in the dermatology world and in the rheumatology world and in other autoimmune type conditions. So Mustafa and colleagues performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of all the studies of mycophenolate mofetil in lichen planopilaris. They found a total of six studies and they retrieved data from 94 patients. The studies ranged in size from 5 to 66 patients. 20% of patients had a complete response with the use of mycophenolate mofetil. About half had a partial response, and about a third had no response at all. Fairly well tolerated. About 17% had some sort of side effect with the use of mycophenolate mofetil to treat their LPP, including increased liver enzymes in 5%, urinary tract infections in 3%, as well as a lower proportion having peripheral edema, photosensitivity, low blood counts, hyperlipidemia, and shingles. And so overall, fairly well tolerated. When we put patients on mycophenolate mofetil, you have to perform CBC and liver function tests. Any immunosuppressant, you have to consider whether you're going to give shingles vaccination before starting. And these are certainly side effects of MMF. But in general, helpful for a very small proportion of patients. Doesn't help everybody. One in five are going to have very nice responses. But a third of patients are not going to respond at all. But it is generally fairly well tolerated. From LPP, we moved to folliculitis decalvans and a study looking at the use of the TNF inhibitor adalimumab in 23 patients. So folliculitis decalvans is a scarring alopecia. It's classified as a neutrophilic scarring alopecia. In the hair loss clinic, it's certainly much less common than LPP. Hard to know how common folliculitis decalvans is but it's probably a lot less common than lichen planopilaris. Patients present with a painful folliculitis, often on the crown. They have itching and burning, redness. Sometimes they have pustules. They're often misdiagnosed as having a folliculitis, and it can lead to permanent hair loss if patients aren't treated properly, diagnosed early, and treated aggressively. So it creates redness in the crown, and initially patients can go on for years and years with pustules and papules and bumps in the crown that are itchy, until someone realizes that these little bumps leave behind patches of scarring when they go away. So the pathogenesis isn't fully understood, but it's thought that bacteria have a very important role in folliculitis decalvans, and these bacteria are now thought to form biofilms, which trap them in hair follicles and make them really difficult to eradicate. These sneaky bacteria are able to live successfully in the scalp and in hair through the formation of these biofilms. And these can induce activation of the immune system. And many authors use antibiotics as first line for treating folliculitis decalvans, but not all patients respond to antibiotics. Some do, but not all patients do. And so clearly we need other strategies. And so often we use antibiotics. We use sometimes isotretinoin to make the scalp inhospitable to bacteria and to affect bacterial load. Anti-inflammatory treatments like steroid injections, topical steroids can be used. But then there's all these third-line treatments. These treatments that we use when things just aren't getting better. Dapsone is used. TNF inhibitors have been used in the past. Aprimolast is used. Baricitinib is used. Tofacitinib is used. NDEG lasers are used photodynamic therapy is used. There's a whole host of treatments that are used when we're not sure what to do. So the TNF inhibitor adalimumab has been studied in the past. There's a study in 2014 which looked at adalimumab and a study in 2019 which looked at the use of adalimumab for treating refractory folliculitis decalvans. 
Here we have a study, 23 patients with folliculitis decalvans that failed conventional treatments. The authors showed that these patients had been treated with antibiotics before, they weren't getting better, and so the TNF inhibitor adalimumab was used. They were given a subcutaneous injection, 160 milligrams at the start of treatment, seven days later, 80 milligrams, and then 80 milligrams every other week after that. Adalimumab was well tolerated in these 23 patients. All patients had some sort of improvement. This was noted as early as the first month. The range of treatments ranged from 6 to 24 months, and the, the authors continue to follow these patients. But two of the 23 patients stopped treatment because of lack of a sustained improvement with adalimumab. So about 90% of patients had some sort of continued sustained improvement with the use of adalimumab, 80 milligrams every other week. So the authors concluded that TNF inhibitors might be a valid option for refractory folliculitis decalvans. Right now, we consider TNF inhibitors kind of third line. We think that we should be going after the bacteria and trying to fight these biofilms that form. What do we do in refractory cases? Well, maybe these TNF inhibitors are options. Clearly, we need more studies. This is a small study, but it highlights an important role for TNF inhibitors, and there were good responses in this particular study. Lots of unknowns remaining, and like all good studies, we got lots of questions that arise. This is a study of 23 patients, suggests that 90% get some kind of benefit. If the, do if the number of patients is increased to 100 or 200 or 500, do we still churn out numbers of 90%? We don't know, but very important study in this area nevertheless. Do TNF inhibitors stop the redness, stop the bumps, and stop the pustules? But does the scarring just slowly progress? We don't know, but it seems promising that the use of the TNF inhibitor is actually doing something to the disease progression, not just addressing redness and scaling and pustules. Can the use of TNF inhibitors long-term actually cause a burnt-out condition? Tell this condition to go away and be gone permanently? We don't know. And what happens when you stop the drug? This is one of the the major issues with scarring alopecia treatments. Some patients do great, but what happens when we stop the drug or we reduce the dose? Does the disease come back? Sometimes it does. So this isn't well known with this particular treatment plan, TNF inhibitors, but often what happens when you stop antibiotics in folliculitis decalvans is the disease finds a way to come back. When you stop isotretinoin in folliculitis decalvans, the disease comes back. When you stop the steroid injections, the disease comes back. Not always, but sometimes it does. So what happens when you stop adalimumab? We don't know yet. These are important questions for the future, but things we need to be thinking about all the time. Finally, we move to studies of central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia and two really important studies for us to talk about today. CCCA is a condition that I see very frequently. It's a condition that occurs in black women. It causes hair loss in the central scalp. Sometimes it's, it's symptomatic, but not always. A study published in the JAD in March 2022 looked at the association between CCCA and diabetes. So prior studies have turned up all sorts of mixed results when it comes to looking at whether CCCA is linked to diabetes. And some studies have suggested an increased risk. Some studies have suggested, no, there's no risk at all. And a study very recently by Samrio and colleagues, Dr. Mirmarani and Dr. Samrio, showed that doesn't seem to be any risk of diabetes in patients with CCCA, a very nice study, which was published in the Dermatology Online Journal. But two other studies suggested there's an increased risk. An early study from 2011 by Dr. Kiai and colleagues and Coogan and colleagues in 2019 suggested that there's an increased risk of diabetes in women with CCCA. Yes, there is. And so Roche and colleagues looked at this very question. They set out to investigate whether patients with CCCA are at increased risk of diabetes. So they retrospectively evaluated black women between a four-year study period at the University of Pennsylvania. These were women aged 18 to 74, and they compared the rates of diabetes in those with CCCA to the rates of diabetes in those who didn't have CCCA. This was a large database. There were 16,545 women who did not have CCCA in this database, and there were 181 women that had a clinical diagnosis of CCCA, meaning that they didn't have a biopsy confirmation, but the doctor examining the patient or the practitioner examining the patient felt this is CCCA. 43% of patients without CCCA had diabetes. 58% of patients with a clinical diagnosis of CCCA had diabetes. And the authors felt this was significant. There was a 1.86 odds ratio of diabetes 
in women with a clinical diagnosis of CCCA. This was significant. When the authors went back and looked at just the biopsy-confirmed diagnosis of CCCA didn't seem to hold true. 26% of patients with biopsy-confirmed CCCA had diabetes compared to 43% of women without CCCA. This suggested that there wasn't an increased risk of diabetes and maybe, in fact, a decreased risk. So the authors went back and controlled for obesity using women with a BMI less than 30. And by doing so and controlling for obesity they found that women with CCCA had an increased risk for diabetes when obesity was controlled for. 12% of women in the lower body mass index had diabetes. These are women who didn't have CCCA in the database. But 37% of women with CCCA had diabetes when obesity was controlled for, and the authors felt that this was a four-fold increased risk of diabetes in women with CCCA when weight was controlled for. All in all, the authors felt that there is a link between CCCA and diabetes. And so really an interesting study highlights some ongoing debate between these issues of diabetes in women with CCCA. The jury's still out. I think we're accumulating evidence that, you know, there may be some, some evidence. I think when we study the relationship between diabetes and CCCA, we really have to control for a number of factors. We know that body mass index and obesity are related to CCCA and are related to diabetes, so we need to control for this. We know that women with low HDL have an increased risk for diabetes. We know that women with high blood pressure have an increased risk for diabetes, so perhaps we need to control for these as well in women with CCCA when we go and look at the data. So we have three studies suggesting there's an increased risk of diabetes with women with CCCA. Three pretty nice studies. We have one very nice study suggesting doesn't seem to be an increased risk. So I think for now it's pretty important to be screening for diabetes. It's easy to do. We have to be thinking about diabetes because you can change people's lives very dramatically with this simple blood test and these simple questions. So I think it's very relevant that we do so, but I think we still need to continue to study this important topic of diabetes risk in CCCA. And finally, a very important study looking at vitamin D deficiency in women with CCCA, study by Collins and colleagues in the February issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. So vitamin D is a hormone that regulates the activity of thousands of genes. And vitamin D levels have a very important role in human health. There's a lot of debate about what exactly the role of vitamin D is. There are thousands upon thousands of studies with vitamin D in the literature. Some are conclusive, some are all over the place. Vitamin D is a really important topic, and I'd like to highlight a really important concept that you might not be aware of called the vitamin D paradox, and we'll get to it in a minute. So it's well known that black patients have an increased risk of lower 25-OHD vitamin D levels compared to white patients. And some studies have suggested that black patients may be at sixfold increased risk of having vitamin D deficiency compared to white patients. And some authors have suggested that, at least in North America, many young, healthy black individuals don't have optimal vitamin D serum levels at any time of the year. So vitamin D deficiency is a very important topic in both white patients and black patients. But the rates of deficiency seems to be greater in black patients. And so this study by Collins and colleagues set out to look at the levels of vitamin D deficiency in women with CCCA. Vitamin D insufficiency were levels 20 to 30, which in Canada is 50 to 75 nanomoles per liter. And vitamin D deficiency was anything less than 20 nanograms per mil, which for our Canadian listeners is 50 nanomoles per liter. And so of the 27 patients who met the inclusion criteria in this study, nearly all had vitamin D deficiency or insufficiency. And the authors proposed that compared to black individuals in the general population, black patients with CCCA had a five-fold increase odds ratio of having vitamin D deficiency or insufficiency. And so overall, the authors suggested that vitamin D deficiency is really relevant in CCCA and Patients with CCCA might be at increased risk for vitamin D deficiency. They didn't have an in internal control. And so we don't know whether black patients attending clinics 
at that university hospital without CCCA also had similar rates of vitamin D deficiency when age and obesity was controlled for. Those controls are really important. We don't have that in this particular study. It's really important to control for obesity when we look at vitamin D levels. We know that black women have increased risks of obesity compared to white women. Studies have suggested about a 1.3 to 1.4 fold increased risk. The reason that's important is vitamin D deficiency is more common in women who have obesity. So we do need these controls when we look at vitamin D studies. But the real question that arises based on this study and all vitamin D studies is should we be supplementing with vitamin D in women with CCCA when we identify vitamin D deficiency? We see that the 25 OHD levels when we do the blood test are low. Should we be telling these women to take vitamin D? Seems pretty obvious. If you got low vitamin D, take vitamin D. It may not be so simple. And I'd like to introduce you to the vitamin D paradox if you're not aware of it. It's a very important subject for us to be aware of. As hair loss practitioners, there's much more to the vitamin D story than you might think at first glance. So we all need to be aware of this, especially if you're saying to patients, I think you should take vitamin D, especially if you're at the pharmacy looking at vitamin D supplements and saying, I think I'll take this, can't do any harm. So let's talk about the vitamin D paradox. So past studies have shown a correlation between vitamin D levels, the 25 OHD levels, which is the number one blood test we do, and bone mineral density, and the risk of fractures in white patients and Mexican Americans. But 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels don't correlate with the same health outcomes in black patients. African Americans have been shown to have lower 25 OHD, 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels, but superior bone health. And that is the vitamin D paradox. So let's take a look at vitamin D metabolism briefly. Vitamin D gets made in the skin. We can also take it in through the diet. But it gets made in the skin when UVB radiation hits the skin. And that's cholecalciferol. And this pre-vitamin D gets converted to 25-hydroxyvitamin D, or 25-OHD, by the liver. And that's an inactive form of vitamin D. And that 25-OHD gets bound to vitamin D-binding protein, or albumin, and it floats in the blood, and it goes to the kidney. And then the kidney converts it to 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. And that's the active form. The 25-OHD, or the 25-hydroxyvitamin D blood test, is the test that we order to assess someone's vitamin D status. So if you're going to order vitamin D levels on your patient, you write 25-OHD, 25-hydroxyvitamin D. That's long been thought to be the key marker of the vitamin D status in the patient. If the levels are above 30 nanograms per mil, 75 nanomoles per liter in Canada, and those countries that use international units. We say the patient has vitamin D sufficiency. You're okay. Probably don't need to take more. If the levels are lower than this, we can diagnose vitamin D insufficiency or vitamin D deficiency. So generally, we look at the 25-hydroxy vitamin D level, and we go about making our recommendations. But research evidence has been accumulating over the past decade that decisions on vitamin D supplementations in black patients, simply looking at that 25-hydroxyvitamin D test, might not be so ideal at all. That might not be the perfect way to measure vitamin D status. Let's take a look at this. It's a really important topic. Vitamin D has a key role in bone health. And much to the surprise of researchers, Many black patients have superior bone health despite the lower levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D. And studies in bone health in black patients go back many decades. A 2005 study by Barrett and colleagues showed that the fracture rate in elderly African-American women was only half that of white women. And if you're not familiar with the landmark study in 2013 by Powell and colleagues from Boston, you should. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's really a landmark paper. Powell and colleagues estimated the levels of total 
25 OH vitamin D, 25 hydroxy vitamin D, but also the levels of free 25 hydroxy vitamin D, the levels of free 25 hydroxy vitamin D that are floating in the blood, as well as the levels of the 25, uh, the vitamin D binding protein. These proteins that sop up the vitamin D in the blood. And they found overall that even though the vitamin D binding proteins are lower in black patients, the bioavailable 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels were the same in black patients and white patients. Studies after this, in the years after this landmark 2013 study, started looking at how are we really supposed to assess vitamin D status in black patients and white patients? And are these tests that we're doing really relevant? And so studies in the years after this 2013 study supported the notion that these 25-hydroxy vitamin D tests may lead some patients to be considered to be vitamin D insufficient, when perhaps they're not insufficient. And they might lead some patients to be called vitamin D deficient, when perhaps they're not vitamin D deficient. And other studies, including a 2015 study, showed that the 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels are indeed lower in black patients, but the free or bioavailable vitamin D levels are fairly similar in many patients. So researchers have suggested that there's not just one factor that explains this vitamin D paradox, but there's many issues that we need to be thinking about, including obesity. Adipose tissue sops up vitamin D levels very efficiently. So the more obese you are, the lower your vitamin D levels are. So these need to be studied. Skin pigmentation needs to be studied. Vitamin D binding polymorphisms need to be studied. These vitamin D polymorphisms bind vitamin D and 25-hydroxy vitamin D differently. Genetics is very relevant as we think about vitamin D levels, and all these contribute to differences in vitamin D levels. And in 2017, several organizations co-sponsored an expert panel to further address this vitamin D paradox. And there were six panelists that were considered experts in vitamin D and experts in the vitamin D paradox, which were invited to participate in this meeting. And the meeting summary was published in a document, in a paper. And I'll include this paper in the show notes. It's a free manuscript addressing the vitamin D paradox. And I think it's really important for us all to be aware of. It's called the Vitamin D Paradox in Black Americans, a systems-based approach to investigating clinical practice, research, and public health. And so some of the information from these six panelists is really important. Dr. Hufnagel from the University of Washington highlighted studies that the 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels clearly decrease as skin color darkens from white, Chinese, Hispanic to black Americans. But when you look at a very important study, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, or MESA, this study supported the finding that the fracture rate or the rate of broken bones in black Americans is lower than white Americans. And the serum levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels are lower. The 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels are associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular disease in white and Chinese Americans, but higher levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels don't, ne don't necessarily translate into better cardiovascular risk in black patients. And in fact, there is data that higher levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D actually is associated with increased cardiovascular risk in black patients. And Dr. Hufnagel reminded us of a National Health and Nutrition Examination study which showed that higher levels of 25-OHD is associated with lower mortality in white Americans, but it's not quite as strongly associated with lower mortality in black Americans. And so these are really, really important studies. What are the cutoffs that we should be thinking about in our various patient populations? There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of unknowns when it comes to how best to assess vitamin D. Should we be using 25-hydroxy vitamin D? Well, for now, it seems to be the best test, but there's a lot of active research looking at other parameters that we might be considering in our patients. And this is ongoing research, which I think we should be aware of. I found it really interesting in this paper, which again is free and online, and it's included in the show notes, which suggested that the safe upper limit for vitamin D intake could be very high for white patients, but it might not be so high for black patients. The Endocrine Society recommends that it may be, a, it may be safe 
for some patients to go quite high with vitamin D, even towards 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 units. And that's not recommended by all societies, but the Endocrine Society reminds us that the upper limit for safety might be fairly safe for many white patients. The Institute of Medicine, or the IOM, recommends that, well, maybe the cutoff is 4,000 for safety. But these authors in this expert panel remind us that those upper limits may not be safe for black patients. And higher doses of vitamin D can increase the risk for falls and fractures in black patients. And so if you think with these studies about low vitamin D and vitamin D insufficiency in your patients with CCCA, in your patients with all these skin conditions, that you're going to recommend mega doses of vitamin D, you may be causing more harm than good. The vitamin D paradox is absolutely critical for us to all know about. I'd encourage you to read more about it. Mega dosing for vitamin D may not be the way to go. More studies are needed to determine how best to measure vitamin D. Clearly, we need 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels above 12.5 nanograms per mil. That's pretty clear. But do we really need to be aiming for above 30 in black patients? That's not clear. And so I think we have to be careful about recommending mega doses of vitamin D in black patients until we have more data and we have to proceed cautiously. And so really fascinating information over the last decade and I hope this highlights some important information for you as you care for patients of various racial backgrounds. So that's it for this week everyone. I really want to thank you for listening to this episode of Scarring Alopecia. We've talked about several studies in FFA, lichen plano pilaris, folliculitis decalvans and CCCA. We highlighted a really important study by Dubin and colleagues relating to the genes and proteins in FFA. We highlighted some important data in women with FFA, a study of 188 patients reminding us of the early age of menopause in these patients. We looked at a study of 17 males with FFA reminding us of the early age of onset in many male patients with FFA seems younger than occurs in women. We looked at the role of mycophenolate mofetil in LPP has complete responses in 20% of patients. We looked at the use of baricitinib in LPP may have some benefit in LPP and FFA but not in all patients. We looked at a really important study looking at the TNF inhibitor adalimumab in folliculitis decalvans. Refractory, stubborn to treat folliculitis decalvans may respond to adalimumab. And then some important studies looking at the risk of diabetes in women with CCCA and some very important data of vitamin D deficiency in patients with CCCA. And we talked about the vitamin D paradox, which I think is really, really important for all practitioners and everybody to know about as we think about the parameters we use to test for vitamin D deficiency. It is far more complex than we think about. And if you're just ordering vitamin D levels 25 OHD, looking at the levels and then ordering super high doses of vitamin D levels because you think it's the right way to go, you may be causing more harm than good. So please review those studies in more detail at your leisure. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Evidence-Based Hair. We're always interested to know what you think. If you'd like to learn more about our training programs at the Donovan Hair Academy, please email us. We're at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week, we're back talking about a potpourri of studies published in the last month or two of various topics in hair loss. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on another episode of Evidence-Based Hair. <laughs>